This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Good morning, everyone. The Lord has been very, very kind to us today to gather us as his people, to sing his praises, to offer our prayers, and to receive grace that allows us to honor him and to love others. How can we thank him enough? And what we're about to experience is more of God's grace. We marvel when we see God building his church. We love to receive new members. We love to celebrate when babies are born and children are adopted into our church family. And we thank God for providing pastors to equip us for ministry. And then we marvel at the fruit that comes from these gifts. God builds up his church and does gracious things through the gifts that he gives it. This morning, we're going to welcome Stephen St. John to preach for us here for the first time at CCK. And we look forward to his joining the pastoral team next month. This is God giving gifts to his local church. Stephen and Jennifer bring a lifetime of seeing God's grace at work. Their experiences in ministry, in mission, in adopting, and family have made them compelling witnesses of grace. And their having been joined with us makes us a more lovely place, a more mature place, a more gracious place. We can look forward to theological and doctrinal insight, pastoral empathy and care, and practical wisdom, not only in this morning's sermon, but Lord willing, for a long, long time to come. These will be the fruits that come from God's gift to us. So would you please join me in thanking God and welcoming Stephen to come and preach. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you, everybody. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our familiar book, 1 Peter. We'll be back in 1 Peter this morning, and we're going to look at just one verse. I think that's all they thought I could handle, so they just gave me the one. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Peter, we know from our many weeks of studying was writing to first century Christians scattered throughout the world. They were people who had experienced suffering and persecution. They were likely to experience more suffering. So he writes to encourage them in their faith and to show them all the hope and confidence they can have in Christ Jesus and to exhort them to stand firm in the face of what was likely to be more trouble to come their way. Peter reminds them that they have been rescued from the futility of life 
without Jesus Christ. That was in 1 Peter chapter 1, which in my Bible, it's just right across from our text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited. They were ransomed from that. And though they once didn't belong to God, they were brought into his family. They became his people. That's in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. They can trust God even in the face of their difficult circumstances because they belong to him. Now, in our study of 1 Peter, I think we've recognized that we can relate just a little bit to these first century Christians. For many of us, we are living now through some of the most challenging and difficult months and years of our lives. Maybe not personally, but many of us are doing very well personally. But if we look at the world out there, we look at the nation, we look at the world, we see more trouble perhaps than we've ever seen. Now, this may very well be an indicator of how cushy and nice our lives have been up to now. Nevertheless, we see all kinds of trouble around us. Peter is telling us that we need to be careful in this context not to take our cues from the world around us. Because as we see all of this trouble that is in it, we see examples of people dealing with trouble in a way that is not consistent with the way God wants us to deal with trouble. We are not going to find truth and we are not going to find the kind of guidance we desire in, in the world. I don't think we need to worry, really, about the booted thugs coming in and kicking in our door or anything like that. But we do need to be worried about getting a false message from the world around us or from the remnants of sin in our hearts. We ought to get our message from God. And God in his kindness is giving it to us this morning. He's, he's telling us that we need, this was actually in chapter 2 and verse 12, to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We need to live differently than the nations. Peter is telling us, you belong to God, live as God's people should. And so his theme since the end of chapter 2 has been Christian living. He tells us how to live and how to relate to authority in the government. He tells uh, about how servants should relate to their masters. And, and he talks about the duties of wives and the duties of husbands. And now as we approach this eighth verse of 1 Peter chapter 3, he broadens his attention again to all the Christian people, to everyone in the church. And he says this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, this is God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. W would you join me for just a moment in prayer again? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that we have just read for this holy sentence. We thank you that you've given it to us, Lord. We are before you as a needy people. And we are looking to your word for a sovereign, gracious, 
powerful message this morning. And so we pray that you would open wide the eyes of our hearts so that we might behold wonderful things in this your word. Things we need to know, Lord. You know each one of us. Teach us now, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bill told me that this morning I should talk a little bit about myself and about my family. I'm kind of shy about doing that. We have received already so much love from this church over the years. And I think way too much attention for the past few weeks since the ordination service. Everybody has been so very kind to me and kind to my family. It is very humbling, humbling indeed. It is humbling to become a pastor at, at Cornerstone. It might not be quite as humbling, though, as it was for me when I entered the, the ministry at the church, an international church in Jakarta, Indonesia. As I was coming on there at the church, they had a special dinner for me to kind of introduce me to people in the congregation. This dinner took place on the roof of a, a luxury high-rise apartment building. And on the top of this roof, the, it was very beautiful up there, city skylines and everything. You could see all the lights of the buildings at night. And they had on this roof uh, an infinity swimming pool. You could swim in the pool, like right up to the edge of the roof. And it felt like you were kind of swimming in the sky, looking out at the city. It was very, very nice, very, very beautiful. Also on the roof, they had a glass banquet room. It was enclosed in glass, so all the walls were clear glass, and the doors were, were clear glass, so you could sit out there in the tropics on a hot Jakarta night and enjoy your dinner, feeling like you were outside, looking at the city in the air conditioning. It was very, very, very nice. So they had a, a dinner, you know, for me in this in this banquet uh, room, and I was going to speak after dinner. So as I finished my meal, I thought, you know, I'm going to slip out and, and use the restroom uh, before I speak. So I went out, and of course, you'll be glad to know that the restroom did not have clear glass walls. It was just an ordinary room. And I went to the restroom, and I left there, and I was headed back across the, the pool patio. And I could see in the room, of course, because of the glass walls. And I noticed my friend, one of the elders at the church, he, he had already started introducing me. I guess he didn't know that I wasn't in the room. And so I was just like never showing up. And so he, he was just kind of stalling. And, and when he saw me coming across the pool deck, he looked very relieved. And he sort of motioned with his hands. And here's Stephen now. Well, I'm still outside the room, and I realize I'm running late, so I start to do this little jog thing to get into the room, kind of triumphantly coming in, you know, like I'm coming to the pulpit, and I'm jogging, and I just go smack right into the glass. My face just kind of down the side of the glass, and I kind of stagger back, and I go back in through the open door, and I get up to the podium. I've got a big red mark on my face while I start to talk. And, and you know, to, make, to make it just a little bit worse, uh, Indonesian people are very, very polite. It's a very polite culture. And so when I ran into the glass and staggered around, nobody laughed. <laughs> nobody said a word. They just, they just looked at me. And it was just very awkward. And so I'm really hoping that this morning will not be that awkward as I talk to all of you today. 
You know, we were able to have that dinner on the top of that luxury building because there was a man in the congregation. His, his name was Greg, and he worked for an American oil company. He lived in that building. He was there in, in Jakarta to make money. Apparently, it was, it was going well. And so he very generously made it possible for us to have this banquet and this very, very nice, uh, nice environment. But something that was really wonderful about the international church in Jakarta was the wide range of people who were part of that church. So you had Greg, the American oil man on the one hand, but for example, there were some other people uh, like an Indonesian man. His name was Samuel. Samuel's background was, was very different. He was a working man. He didn't have a large income. He'd never traveled internationally. He spent his whole life there working in Jakarta. But a wonderful thing is, though their backgrounds and circumstances were very different, Greg and Samuel were brothers in the Lord, united in Christ Jesus. Well, also early in the time in Jakarta, I got news that Samuel was very sick. He was in the hospital. So I went, I went to see him. You know, in the Indonesian hospital, they have different classes of care uh, based on how much you can pay. And Samuel was in the third class ward of the hospital. Uh, I went to see him there. It was like stepping on to an old-timey movie set. You know, there were rows of cots in a great big room. A couple of nurses going up and down these rows of cots. And I went and I found Samuel. I sat down. I talked to him. He was very discouraged. He was hurting. He had diabetes. And so part of his foot had been amputated. And, and it hurt and he was kind of depressed about it. He was hurting, of course, because part of his foot was missing. But he was really discouraged because he needed that foot, right? He needed to get out and he needed to walk on the street. He needed to use the public transportation to get to work. And he's wondering, what is he going to do? And he's laying there on that bed. And I thought to myself, you know, my new friend here, Samuel, he, he reminds me, actually, of what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. The church, the body of Christ, is made up of many different members. And, and Paul writes in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 12 that if one member suffers, all suffer together. Samuel was suffering because of his foot. But, but guess what? Greg, the American oil man, was suffering because of Samuel. You see, though they once weren't a people, right? They were, they were separate from one another. Now in Christ Jesus, they were united as a people. Though they came from very different places far away. Now they came together as brothers in the Lord, united in Christ. That, that's what it means to be part of the church, to be part of the family of God. It means to be united. And the same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to, to make that beautiful illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 inspired Peter to write to us this morning and to tell us in this 8th verse of 1 Peter chapter 3 that because we are God's chosen people, we must live in unity. This is Peter's main point in the verse. It's our main point this morning. Because we belong to God, we are united. We're united or ought to be in our thinking, in our feeling, in our actions. First of all, 
Because we belong to God as his people, we must be united in our thinking. So 1 Peter chapter 3, it's right there at the start. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind. Bill took us through the last few chapters of Romans at the beginning of January. He was encouraging us to be united for the glory of God, not to divide, not to argue over disputable matters. God wants his chosen people to be united. Bill ended his message with Romans 15 verse 5 which says, Live in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Literally it says, be of the same mind according to Christ. Now, Bill did a fine job of explaining to us that unity doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. We, we don't have to agree about everything. There are lots of people who think that Tom Brady is the best NFL quarterback who ever played. But we know we don't all agree on that, right? We don't have to agree on everything. But we do as Christian people agree in Christ. We agree about Christ. Our minds know him and we try to think like him. Unity of mind among Christians comes from unity according to Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16, he says, we have, Christians, we have the mind of Christ. Romans 12 verse 2, talking about the spirit-filled life. Be renewed by transforming your mind in the spirit. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 6, take every thought captive and make them obedient to Christ. So we want to think like Christ. We want to have his mind. How do you know? How do you know if you have the mind of Christ? Is there a test or something so you can know? Well, we have the mind of Christ when we live like Christ. If you would turn with me just to another spot, just briefly, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to go there. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Here's some wonderful exhortation for us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Jesus demonstrated for us his mind. He did it through his words and through his actions. How did he live? Well, we get a little summary of it in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus does. This is how Jesus lives. He was obedient to his Father in heaven. That's verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2. He served other people. That's verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2. He was humble and he gave up his throne in heaven to come down and be here. That's verse 6 of Philippians 2. And he wants us to have the same sort of mind. A humble mind. Like he was humble. That's also back in our text. 
1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. It's at the very end. Have a humble mind. Like Jesus had a humble mind. Jesus therefore put others above himself. And he sought to serve others in obedience to his father. That's the result of Christian thinking. Belonging to Jesus changes the way Christians think. And then promotes unity. When God's people have humble minds. There is unity and friendship. And we have a great need for friendship today. There's so much distance between people today. On Wednesday, I had the real privilege of, of hanging out uh, with the pastoral team. And C.J. Mahaney came down from Louisville, spent the day with us. And I actually got sermon tips from C.J. on this passage he was, he was very kind. In fact, he sent me his, his sermon notes on 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, 8. And I thought, well, I guess I'll just throw mine away and, and use his. It was very nice. But one, one thing that he said that I think was e extremely helpful is he, he mentioned that we ought to think about the sort of digital distance that is between us today. I mean, the, the internet can be wonderful, right? We're streaming online right now, and I thank God for that during this season, that our brothers and sisters who can't be here today because of COVID can, can worship with us on the live stream. So it's a wonderful technology, but there's a real danger when we have this kind of digital distance. It, 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 it can be hurtful for us. For some people, the digital distance provided by the internet and by social media causes them to use thoughts that they wouldn't use with someone face to face and words that they wouldn't use with someone face to face. There's a kind of a, a thoughtlessness and a pride that they would never exhibit face-to-face -face with someone else, with other believers. That's the part that I'm totally plagiarizing from CJ right there. Because that was his point. Face-to-face. -face. God wants us to live face-to-face -face as Christian people. To, to have unity of mind and unity of thought. And, and to be humble in the way we relate to one another. He's calling us to be like-minded and humble-minded. John Calvin, Bill's homeboy... I think the two of them went to school together. <laughs> I'm just saying that because Bill's not here. John Calvin says this. It is the chief bond to preserve friendship when everyone thinks modestly and humbly of himself. And there is nothing on the other hand which produces more discords than when we think too highly of ourselves. God wants us to have humble minds. That's the end of verse 8. And he wants our minds to be united. That's the beginning of verse 8. He wants our minds to be united around the truth of Jesus Christ. You know, there, there are people, many people in the world today, who think that the way to promote unity is to step away from the truth. To step away from it. There's a great danger in that. J.C. Ryle writes, Peace without unity is a false peace. It is the very peace of the devil. That was peace without truth. I said it the wrong way. Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. 
We ought to contend jealously for the truth and to fear the loss of truth more than the loss of peace. To maintain pure truth in the church, we should be ready to make any sacrifice. Now, Bishop Ryle is not trying to be incendiary here. He's not trying to drive us towards conflict. He's trying to push us gently in the right direction towards peace and towards unity. To, to have peace and unity, you've got to get there the right way. One of the devil's most common and I think dirtiest tricks is to tell us that unity is promoted when people ignore what God says or when they kind of soften or downplay what God says. Some people will say, well, you know, theology is divisive. People will just argue about theology, teaching about biblical obedience. That's just going to offend people and it's going to create division, some people say. Some people say telling people that Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father is going to hurt people and drive them away. But the fact is, we cannot have unity by conforming to the world and ignoring biblical principles. Unity comes when we're conformed to the word. And I'm, I'm using a big W there, okay? I mean, it's true about the Bible, but unity comes when we're conformed to the image of Christ. And the beautiful thing about a group of people like this is we may all be different. You know, we've got different opinions and different tastes and we look different and act and talk different sometimes. But as we, as we move closer to Christ, you know what happens? All of us move closer together. We're united in Jesus Christ, united by having the same mind and by having a humble mind. We must be united in, in our thinking. But Christian people also should be united in our feeling. You know, God sees and knows all. Isn't that incredible to think about God that way? God knows all. God in heaven right now is looking straight into your soul. And he knows everything about you and everything in you. And some of us, you know, it makes us kind of uncomfortable. And for some of us, it's a huge comfort, right? Because we're like, I've, I felt like no one knows me. But God knows you. He's looking into your soul. And he's not only concerned about what's going on in your head. God wants you to have a tender heart. It's there in our verse also, near the end of the verse. Have all of you a tender heart. The, the word is referring to what goes on on the inside. It's referring to the, the interior of the Christian person, the inner Christian life. And I know a lot of us, especially us guys, and you know, we don't like to sit around and talk about our feelings, talk about what's going on in our hearts. But you know what? God wants to talk about it. God is talking about it right here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Jesus talked about it. He said this in Matthew 15. What comes from the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These things come from the heart. So feelings, feelings that we have do matter. The condition of our heart has a major impact on our lives and on the lives of people around us. Those who are tender hearted are going to be tender towards other people. They're going to be sympathetic towards others. It's also in the verse. It's right in the middle. There's the word sympathy. They're going to act and feel sympathetically towards others. Now we'll come back to that 
in a minute. But for now, just know sympathy starts here in the tender heart. Concern for others starts on the inside. We like to joke that our son, Simon, uh, nearly killed his mother. It was the first thing he did, actually, because uh, she was pregnant with him and she went to see her OB doctor and her doctor sent her, sent Jennifer, straight to the emergency room. She had apparently just this really wild, irregular heart stuff going on, irregular heartbeat. Uh, she still, still struggles with this kind of thing. Uh, so if you can pray for that, that'd be awesome, by the way. But she was in the hospital then, and uh, uh, she had a heart problem. They, they put her in the cardiac intensive care unit, and that was, that was, was pretty scary. Uh, you know what? I actually thought about this last week when Bill was preaching. Didn't he preach last week, and he talked about Sherry having a heart attack? And you know what I thought in that moment? I thought, you know, being... Uh, a woman married to a pastor must be really dangerous. You know, stuff, stuff just happens. I don't know. But so here she was. She was in the cardiac intensive care unit and they were shooting all kinds of medicines in her to try to get her heart to go back to her normal rhythm. And the doctor came out to talk to me in the waiting room. This is what he said. I've never forgotten it. He said, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get her heart to convert back to a normal rhythm. And I thought... Trying to get her heart to convert. So, so I, I sat there in the waiting room thinking, God, thank you. Thank you for giving me a sermon illustration that I'm going to use for the next 21 years. <laughs> because, because if the heart isn't right, things aren't right. That everybody knows that. The, the heart has to be, has to be right. By the way, uh, Jennifer's doing good. She's sitting right there. I love her so much. But you know, friends, the God who loves you is concerned about your heart. So I just want to ask you this morning, what is the condition of your heart? Is it, is it tender? Do you know what? Jesus does to the Christian's heart. It's, it's not like he comes and he shoots medicine in it to try to get it to beat a little better, to, to try to get it, you know, more normal or anything like that. Jesus approaches the heart of the Christian more like a heart surgeon who is coming to do a heart transplant. And when you, no matter who you are, you've either done this or you need to do this when you turn away from your sin and, 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 and your, your mess and the ugliness of your life. And you turn in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ and trust in what he's done for you, dying on the cross and being raised to life, then Jesus comes and he takes out that old heart, that hardened heart, that stained heart with sin, that, that heart that can sometimes be cold and weakened and burdened. He takes that heart out and he puts a new one in there, a fresh one, a live one, a happy one, a tender heart. Jesus does that for every Christian who turns from sin and trusts in the gospel. They get, you get a new heart. And this new heart 
unites us to Christ and unites us to other Christians. Jesus Christ is changing us from the inside out. He changes us. And maybe we once had a heart that was just really hard and cold towards others, but now it's soft. Maybe we, we had a heart that was just angry towards other people, but now we're reconciled to God and we're reconciled to other people around us. Perhaps we had a guilty heart and we just wanted to hide away from others, but now we have peace of conscience in our hearts because of Christ. And so we're willing to step out there and reach out to people around us. So we are united because we, we, we have a new heart. Something has happened to us on the inside that is different. It won't be perfect until we get to heaven. But we are growing. Christ is growing our hearts. And we're not alone in this new heart growth. Our changed hearts, our changed minds connect us to one another. And flowing from this new attitude, okay, so that's our heart. And from this new way of thinking, that's our head. Then we ought to have, and I think do have, new ways of acting, of doing. I kind of want to say hands there, by the way. Sounds like a kid's song, doesn't it? <laughs> Head, heart, hands. So God, God wants us to be united in our thinking, in our feeling, and also united in, in our actions. Now, I said we would come back to the word sympathy. It's right there in the middle of verse 8. Have sympathy. The word means sameness in suffering or passion. That, that makes sense to us, right? Because when we talk about the suffering of Jesus... We, we sometimes call it the passion of Jesus. And so to have sympathy, it, it, it means there's a relationship between these two words, between suffering and passion. So when a Christian suffers, like Samuel was suffering when he had his foot amputated. When a Christian suffers, his brothers and sisters suffer with him. When a Christian is concerned about something or passionate about something, her brothers and sisters are passionate and concerned with her. We are one body in Christ. Our concerns are united. I mean, that's how a family works, right? And Christian people belong to the family of God. So our actions in sympathy are characterized by brotherly love. That's also there in the middle of the verse. Have sympathy. Brotherly love. Now, thanks to that famous city in, in Philadelphia, this is a Greek word. Uh, in Pennsylvania, I gave it away. This is a Greek word. Everybody knows the word, right? Philadelphioi is, is the word. And in the New Testament... And in the first century literature outside of the New Testament, it is always referring to children who have the same father. And that, that's who we are as Christian people. We're all adopted into God's family and we have the same father. And so there is a family bond among Christians. Christian people ought to treat one another like we are part of a family with loving feelings and actions towards one another. What we think, what we feel, affects the way we act. So I have five sons and three daughters. Uh, the boys are, are all grown. Three daughters are still at home, homeschooling. They're so lovely. You know, they're like, Daddy, you just sit there and we'll make dinner. That's lovely. The boys were okay too. 
But I realized with those, with those five brothers, I, I thought when they were little, I'm like, man, if I let these boys like carry on in the house, like wrestle and play fight and stuff, they're going to destroy the place. You know, they're just going to, they're just going to tear it to pieces. So I made a rule, no wrestling inside the house, no fighting in the house. I think the rule has been successful. They've all grown up to adulthood now, which I consider success, right? I mean, I know that's setting the bar pretty low, but they're all grown. They all survived their childhood. You know, the truth is they've done better than that. They're wonderful men. I love each one of them. You know, God told me I would, right? Because he says in Psalm 127, the children are a reward from the Lord, a blessing from the Lord. And these, these men are. But when they were little, they would sometimes get in a spat with one another. Mean words would lean to some mean thinking and some mean actions towards one another. They'd get in trouble. You know, we'd discipline the kids. And uh, then, then, you know, there was always, Jennifer and I are very proud of our lengthy speeches that we give to the children. We think they're great. I don't know if the kids appreciate them as much. But I know when, when I would discipline the boys when they were little, and, and then and they can all attest to the truth of this, I would often sit down. If they had been fighting with one another, and, and open the Bible to 1 John. And I would read from 1 John chapter 1, whoever hates his brother walks in darkness. And from 1 John chapter 3, I really like this one, all who hate their brothers are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. You don't want to walk in darkness, do you, son? You don't want to be a murderer, do you? I mean, hey, we throw long at our house when we're dealing with the kids, all right? But you know, the, the reason we do that is because we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible. And we, we do believe that brothers ought to love one another. And clearly, Christian brothers ought to love one another. And Christian sisters ought to love one another. Christian people ought to be known by the way they love one another. And this is seen in action, in the way we take care of each other. Jesus, we, we read in Philippians 2, and we sang about it this morning. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, making himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant so he could serve us. And he did it in obedience to God. And God is calling us to take the same kinds of actions. Peter writes elsewhere that we ought to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. So if you want to know how to act in love towards other people and in unity, do what Jesus did. Here's, here's a helpful way to think about it. Philippians chapter 2, 4. Each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. So think about the people around you right now in this, in this room. Or the people around you in your living room if you're on the live stream. Or the people that you're going to see at school this week or at work this week or wherever you go this week. Think about what, what, what are they interested in. What are their interests? And how can you look out for their interests? Christ wants you to do this. Following in his footsteps, united in action. And I love what a group of people can do together, really. One of the nice things about having a big family, it's, it's great when you need to unload the groceries or move a piece of furniture or something. You know, many, many hands make light work. I don't know if you've seen the movie Fireproof. It's a pretty decent movie. It's about uh, reconciliation in a broken marriage, you know. And it's really, you know, there's always hope, right? That with God, all things are possible, no matter how things look now, by the way. 
There's always hope in Christ Jesus. So that's what that movie's about. But, but there's a scene in the movie where there's been a car accident. And there's a car. It, it's run into another car. And the one car is actually stuck on the, on the railroad tracks. And there's a few firefighters out there. They're trying to get this woman out of the car. They can't get her out of the car. The car's on the tracks. Well, since it's a movie... Of course, there's a train coming. So here are these firefighters. They're around this car. They, they can't get the car open to get the woman out. The train is, is coming. And so they, they start just trying to push this car and move this car. There's a crowd of onlookers watching this take place. They're just kind of watching, you know. And they see this little group of firefighters trying to move the car. They can't move the car. It's too much for them. So first one person comes over to start to help. And then a second. And then a third. And then a little crowd of people. You know, strangers. They don't even know each other. They're gathered around this car. And they're like, you know, one, two, three. And lifting together. And they're trying to move this car. And it moves little by little. And they finally get it off the tracks just in time for the train to go screaming by. It's a beautiful and powerful scene. But I think that it captures a little piece of what the Bible is telling us this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. We are living in a dangerous time. We're, we are living in a perilous time. We are in danger I think dangerous physically, perhaps, because of COVID-19, economically, maybe. But it is certainly perilous spiritually because of all the wrong messaging that's around us in the world out there. And because of all the sin that is in our own hearts and, and, and sin in the people in the world around us. So friends, we need one another we, we need to come together and to lift together. And more than anything, we need our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need his Holy Spirit in our lives to unite us together so that our minds and our hearts are united and focused on Christ together so we can take godly actions and bring a godly attitude into this world together. I, I think in the months and maybe years ahead, we Christian brothers and sisters here in the United States of America, we're going to experience some stuff that Christian people in places like Indonesia and Vietnam have been used to for a long time. And we're going to realize that we, we do need one another more than ever. This is not a surprise to God. He's always known about it. 2,000 years ago even, he sent us a message about it. And it's right here. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brother love, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this little verse. And we just, just scratched the surface of it this morning. Of, of understanding it and our ability to believe it and obey it. Is, is even weaker, Lord. And so we pray together now for your Holy Spirit to just fill in all the gaps in our little talk about it this morning. 
and to empower us, Lord, to believe your word and to obey your word, to see the glory and greatness and goodness and mercy of Christ Jesus afresh so that we are united together as we are united in our faith and trust and hope and love in him. Do that, Lord. That would be for our good and it would be for the good of the world. And we pray you would do it for that, but also for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.